This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello, I'm Lauren Martin, and I'm here with the authors of Climate Change, Disasters and Mobility, a Roadmap for Australian Action. This new policy brief from UNSW's Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law was co-written by the Caldor Centre's director, Jane McAdam, and Jonathan Pryke, director of the Lowy Institute's Pacific Islands Program. Jane, to begin, can you tell us what drove this particular research? Well, it's a really critical time for policymaking. With the impacts of disasters and climate change already forcing people to leave their homes, Often people are moving within their own countries, but sometimes they're crossing borders in search of protection. And we're seeing this not only around the world, but also in our very own region of the Pacific. In fact, in 2019, disasters were displacing more people within their countries than conflict. Three quarters of people were moving for that reason, compared to just a quarter because of general violence or conflict situations. And while the global media focus has been on Syrians fleeing their homes, it may interest people to know that in fact 80% of global displacement in the decade to 2018 occurred within the Asia Pacific region. What we know is that as the planet continues to warm, both internal and cross-border displacement is likely to increase. Disasters will intensify or become more frequent. People are already moving and without preventative measures taken now, that displacement is likely to continue. We might not be able to stop climate-related displacement in its tracks, no matter what mitigation or adaptation strategies we put into place now. But what we can do is flatten the curve, reducing the potential scale and impact of displacement only if we act now. We have all learned those words, flatten the curve, during these past months while trying to contain the coronavirus. Jonathan, how does COVID-19 change things for Australian policymakers looking towards the Pacific? Yeah, thanks, Lauren. And uh, first of all, thanks for having me on here. And it's great to be with you and great to also co-author this uh, important policy brief on a topic that I'm particularly passionate about. Uh, on your question, you know, this year, I think for many of us in Australia, we often wake up feeling like it's Groundhog Day, we're locked in our homes, we're all working on Zoom, working on, uh, we're working remotely, and uh, it's all been a bit challenging and, and repetitive. For this government, um, you know, no surprises, I think it's been the busiest year of their working lives. Uh, mm. the, the, you know, the list of crises and uh, issues that they're dealing with is longer than your arm. I mean, we just had the federal budget handed down last week. And, you know, as Josh Frydenberg, our treasurer, said, the numbers are eye-watering. You know, we are approaching trillion dollars of net debt, largest budget deficit in Australian history. Uh, so, yeah, I think how does this change the way Australian policymakers are working? It's just, you know, they're busy. Uh, they have a lot on their plates. And traditionally, the Pacific has often fallen off the agenda for the Australian government. It's not got the attention it probably, it, I would argue, des has deserved as being you know, our immediate neighbourhood, uh, an area that we have acute and many national uh, interest objectives in. Uh, but if there's any, and you know, the, the, the crises that the Pacific is ch facing is, 
uh, even more acute than here in Australia. Uh, the, the numbers are also eye-watering. Fiji expects to see an economic contraction this year of 21.7%. Vanuatu expects to lose two in five formal sector employment opportunities. The Cook Islands is forecasting a 60% economic contraction. You know, it's not out of the pale to expect a 10% across the board economic contraction in the Pacific. So the, you know, the, the challenges of Pacific facing is, are, are more significant than in Australia. In Australia, the government is a, capable of bringing resources to bear to help plug the holes, but the Pacific is not so in such a fortunate position. If there is any silver lining to all of this, uh, well, the Pacific has actually been well positioned uh, in the Australian government thinking in recent years. The rise of Chinese influence in the Pacific has uh, led to a re-engagement from Australia in the last few years through the, the Step Up program. And this has become really a flagship initiative of Scott Morrison's government. Uh, it's led to restructuring of the bureaucracy to have great, much greater focus on the Pacific, the record high levels of aid, and much more personal attention from the Prime Minister on down uh, so, and so it has led to the Pacific not being forgotten. Still, considering the domestic issues on the table, and there are many, the government has shown that it is only able to do so much with regards to the Pacific. There's a lot of goodwill, uh, and, the, and I wouldn't knock the government for, for trying, uh, but, you know, that there's just a, it's a challenging year, and again, that is very busy. Yes, you mentioned the pandemic and how it's put tremendous pressure on Australia's economy. And I wonder, is this really the wrong time to be talking about humanitarian imperatives towards our neighbours? Well, look, if we had the luxury of time, yeah, sure, we'd want to put it on pause and focus on all the issues we've got going on at home. But, you know, the, cr the crisis is not hitting us in a vacuum. It's affecting us all. And, you know, every dollar we invest now, we save, will save us money in the future because what we're seeing with COVID-19 is that it is an accelerant of existing trends in the Pacific. You know, all the challenges we were talking about last year, climate change, population growth, uh, health and education challenges, you know, a lot of parts of the Pacific were not faring, uh, were not on a, a solid trajectory before the crisis hit. And all of these issues are going to be accelerated into the future. So if we don't act now, I mean, you know, the urgency is real. If we don't act now, if we don't help keep these economies going, if we don't engage in, uh, in the sort of work we're advocating for in our policy brief, we will, uh, the costs will be even greater in the future. So, yeah, it would be nice to be able to sit back um, and focus on ourselves, but, you know, that's, that's not the case. And, you know, we can debate our global obligations to global relief efforts and international humanitarian assistance, and I believe we should be doing a lot more, but what happens in the Pacific directly affects us. You know, this is our immediate neighborhood. We are wedded to the region by geography. Uh, a poorer and more unstable Pacific makes Australia more unsafe. So there's ample ways you can justify engaging in the Pacific from a compassion or obligation stance, but there are also hard-nosed arguments that have been a sound investment in our national interest and our national security. So, you know, I think now is the time to be doing as much as we possibly can. And I think that, that many people in the government do recognize that as well. Lauren, if I could just jump in there, there's there's another point there too. I mean, Jonathan was talking about the importance of, um, you know, the, well, I suppose the cost of inaction outweighing the cost of action. And in fact, um, the UN has suggested that for every dollar that is spent on preparing for disasters through disaster risk reduction, climate change adaptation, and so on, 
there'll be a 60-fold return. So, I mean, the, the numbers are there. It makes economic sense, apart from anything else, to be, uh, you know, investing in this and, and trying to make sure that people's homes are safe, um, but also that people do have alternatives to move if they can't live dignified lives uh, at home going into the future. And, you know, the fact is that a number of people from the Pacific have already claimed refugee or human rights protected status in Australia and New Zealand. They've argued that climate change impacts will mean that their homes are not habitable in the longer term. Um, and that's because of disasters, um, you know, increased um, severity of, of things like cyclones, storm surges, sea level rise over the longer term. And, and with that, shortages of drinking water as uh, salt water starts to contaminate fresh water supplies, also the inability to grow crops. And then you add into that um, things like you know, broader environmental fragility, lack of employment opportunities, and you can see why uh, some people would be seeking to move. Now, in terms of those refugee claims, none has succeeded so far, but it is clear that the legal principles with the right facts would in fact protect people from being removed. So it's not a question of the law being inapplicable completely, it's just that on the facts of the cases that have come to the courts and tribunals thus far, um, a protection need hasn't yet been found. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, issued some legal guidance in this area just uh, this month. And I think what it did very importantly was to emphasise how we need to understand the impacts of climate change in a much broader social, political, economic context. So rather than saying, does climate change displace people, which itself is a little bit nonsensical, it's how do those impacts of climate change on people's lives, livelihoods, welfare, and so on, affect their broader human rights, affect government and social structures, such that in some cases, people will face persecution or will face serious human rights violations um, in their home countries. And that's where governments like Australia need to, I think, sit up and really look very carefully at what changes need to be made to our asylum and our immigration policies. I think if, you know, if the government doesn't do this, then it will come down to decision makers in the tribunals and courts to do this. So, um, you know, that, that, that also, is, I think, is a reason for the government to think very carefully about how it would like to fine-tune um, its laws and policies in this area. Um, we, you know, we need to, you know, as we advocate in the policy brief, this isn't just about protecting people when, um, you know, it's almost too late. It's about devising proactive policies, which include proactive migration policies to let people move now in safety and with dignity. And look, if the, you know, if the humanitarian argument for having greater pathways for migration from the Pacific into Australia doesn't sway you, if the legal arguments don't sway you, well, just look at the economic argument. Australia is a net beneficiary of enhanced migration from the Pacific. We benefit greatly from contributions Pacific Islanders are already making to our economy as seasonal and temporary workers, particularly in the era of COVID-19 where our borders remain shut to many of the other sources of horticultural labour in Australia, be it backpackers or, or other workers. Uh, so, you know, overall, that this is a huge benefit to the Australian economy to allow greater um, migration from, from the region. 
Uh, it in turn also is a circular benefit of circular benefit to the region. You know, these people come to Australia, they earn you know, anywhere between eight to 10 times more than they can earn back home. And they repatriate a lot of that money back home. So it helps directly, it's economic support directly into communities and to improve livelihoods back into the Pacific. Seasonal employment pro programs have the potential to grow up to five times their current size by 2040 if they were to displace the the employment that uh, is that backpackers currently fill in the horticulture sector, uh, but these but these programs could be undermined by displacement-related instability in the sending communities. So this would affect directly affect the employers in Australia who have already very quickly become uh, reliant on these specific workers and who are going to become even more, more reliant in the future as hopefully these schemes get accelerated and um, turbocharged as COVID-19 continues to keep borders shut. Uh, global borders shut and backpackers shut out of the Australian uh, economy. And, and I think we also should say that simply as a good international citizen, Australia should honour the commitments it's made to respect the right to life, the right to dignity and full realisation of other human rights and to help other countries do the same. Well, that could be said also of the larger response to climate change. So. Let's just pause there and step through a few of the issues that you've both raised, because there's a lot in what you've just said. Perhaps, Jane, you can start with, um, I'm wondering how Pacific Islanders are approaching the prospect of more disasters, other impacts of climate change, and how that can inform our approach here in Australia. Well, I think the first thing to say is that most Pacific Islanders do want to remain in their homes. So it's not as though everybody is champing at the bit to leave. And that's why policies that do enable that, um, that address, well, mitigation for a start, but disaster risk reduction, adaptation and the like, are really, really important. But there's also recognition among Pacific communities that some displacement is going to be inevitable. I mean, it already is happening and they can't afford to bury their heads in the sand. So for that reason, Pacific communities are also agitating um, for mobility options or, you know, enhanced migration opportunities, um, as well as reassurance that when disasters do strike, they won't be abandoned by their regional neighbours like Australia and New Zealand. So for a start, we do recommend that Australia look at enhancing disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation and development policies within the region but also to look at how we can make changes to our migration and protection policy settings. There's a lot of global practice that we can look at, including processes that Australia was very directly involved in and remains so. Back in 2012, Switzerland and Norway created an intergovernmental initiative called the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement. And from the outset, Australia was part of that steering group of countries backing that process. It was replaced a couple of years ago by something called the Platform on Disaster Displacement. And again, Australia remains very active there. What the, uh, the earlier initiative, the Nansen Initiative, a bit of a mouthful, its full name, um, what it did was conduct a series of consultations across the world in different regions with governments, with NGOs, with experts, academics, as well as with effective, affected communities themselves to come up with a plethora of information about what it was that needs to happen and what communities themselves want. And one of the striking things there was that the Nansen Initiative created this 
protection agenda, which sets out very clearly some of the steps that governments like Australia should and need to really take. Given that Australia was actively involved with that and that we do have this blueprint, I think it, it really um, bears reconsideration as to um, how Australia can be involved both at a national level but also, or bilateral level, but also at a regional level. And uh, right at the moment, Pacific governments are meeting to really look at how mobility might be developed in the context of disasters and climate change in this region including the potential for some sort of regional movement framework. We've seen similar frameworks um, be developed in other parts of the world. For instance, Central American governments recognised that pretty much all of them had had their nationals forced across borders when disasters had hit, and that it was in their collective interest to have some kind of template for how they would respond so that people wouldn't just be deported back into a situation of, of chaos. And so that's the kind of thing that we could consider creating here. In the Pacific itself, governments are really ahead of the curve, if you like. Um, Fiji and Vanuatu have created their own guidelines for internal displacement and internal relocation. Fiji's even established a trust fund to, to, to support planned relocations of communities. And New Zealand's contributed millions of dollars to that. So again, that's something Australia could also look at doing to try and support um, people to stay within their communities, but who nonetheless, uh, you know, need, need to move elsewhere. So I guess, you know, what I'm saying really is that there's a lot of data and guidance out there that Australia could, could look to. We point to that in our policy brief and we strongly encourage the government um, to start thinking about how it might make reforms to its own processes here. And Jonathan, as Jane says, and, and as your policy brief makes clear, people generally want to stay at home, but they also need pathways to move before a disaster strikes and, and at which point they have no choice. So can you tell us what does planning for mobility actually look like? Does, does this come back to your economic point? Absolutely, uh, it does come back to the economic point. And, you know, whilst we, we do focus here on, nat on uh, natural disasters, climate-induced disasters in the region, the reality is for many Pacific Islanders, they are living through an employment disaster already. Um, the, the Pacific is experiencing a dramatic youth bulge across the whole region. And already there's been a shortage of employment opportunities across the board. You know, these are small economies, small and thin economies, uh, they are very distant from traditional markets. It's, it's very, you know, there are limited employment opportunities. The traditional welfare systems of many of these countries where dependence on the land is one of your traditional safety valves for, for this lack of employment opportunities, well, it's getting tougher when there's just more and more people. That, you know, some of these countries are literally running out of land. So this does change someone's calculus about whether they need, want, or can move. And you know, whilst a disaster may be the stimulus for that, there are many other factors just in day-to-day -day life in the Pacific. What we say in the policy brief is that migration can be a form of adaptation to climate change. It can you know, enhance the resilience of those people who move as well as those who, who stay behind and you know, act as that safety valve, the, the release valve on these demographic pressures we're seeing in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. you know, research done by myself and a former colleague at the Lowy Institute a few years ago found that if you, only, if you allowed only 1% of the Pacific's population, and that's about 130,000 people, if you allowed them to, to work uh, permanently in Australia and you let them come in over, you know, say, 20 years, uh, by the end of that period, 
the the annual benefits that would be going straight to these Pacific Islanders working in Australia would be worth more than Australia's entire aid program to the Pacific, which is about $1.4 billion. So it's it's pretty significant. And you know, this is this is not money coming out of the taxpayer, this is money coming out of employers in Australia who are direct beneficiaries of the labor that is then coming to work on their farms or you know, in uh, abattoirs or wherever else they may be working in the Australian economy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this takes a bit of a paradigm shift for the way we think about development. You know, it's thinking more about development through uh, as, of people rather than development of place. Uh, mm. So develop, but you know, that's the kind of mindset that needs to change. So we need to have some smart migration employment programs to make this work. These could be bilateral or regional free movement agreements. Uh, so be that like similar to what we have with New Zealand. This could be training programs, which Australia already does a lot of through the Australia Pacific Technical College and that prepare individuals to find work abroad. It could also be special new visa categories for people living in at-risk areas. Uh, countries like New Zealand already do have annual special visa categories for permanent migration from a number of Pacific countries such as Samoa, Tonga, Kiribati, uh, Australia could consider the same. Australia could give Pacific Islanders preferential access to existing labour, education or family visas as well. There's many options on the table and Australia should be looking at all of them. You know, none of, a lot of this stuff is not reinventing the wheel here. You know, we can take a lead from New Zealand who has had these favourable migration policies with the Pacific for decades. Samoa, as I said, Samoa, Tonga, Kiribati, Fiji, they have these annual allotments where it's sort of like a green card lottery system where Pacific Islanders on the condition they can find work in New Zealand can migrate permanently with their families. Uh, and, you know, this, this has led to a large buildup of Pacific population in New Zealand. I think 20% of New Zealand's population is Pacifica heritage, including Maori heritage. Uh, but we also see this transfer of uh, of people from New Zealand into Australia. We have close to 200,000 people of Pacific heritage in Australia, most of those from Polynesia, from these countries who have migrated into New Zealand. So these are, you know, these schemes have existed for quite some time. Australia just hasn't latched onto them. And, you know, we can learn a lot from the New Zealand example about how to properly integrate these communities, about how to make sure that they don't fall through the cracks of our society. But overall, the New Zealand model shows that these, that these programs are of great net benefit to, to the, to the, economies of the countries that they are they are going to and also to the countries that are sending them you know Tonga and Samoa Tonga just last year remittances from uh, migrants abroad were valued at more than the Australian remittances just from the seasonal workers program actually were valued at more than the Australian aid program to that country remittances overall are the largest net uh, import for for the Pacific for Tonga so you know these schemes are have existed for a long time and Australia should be looking at all of them to um, to put together a, nice, a good toolkit of more proactive uh, uh, migration program for the Pacific. And you mentioned that we do have some migration employment programs here in Australia, um, which you also examine in the policy brief. Just maybe stop there and tell us a bit about what's working with the programs we have. Yeah, so I will say, you know, it does sound like we haven't, there hasn't, the, move, the needle hasn't moved that much in this space, but actually there has been some quite profound shifts, particularly with, with regards to the coalition government. Back in 2006, uh, there was big, large calls from the Pacific to, to have more temporary migrants coming into Australia. Uh, you know, it was a big topic of conversation at the Pacific Islands Forum. Alexander Downer, our then foreign minister, uh, you know, pretty much said, over my dead body, you know, no way are we doing this. Fast forward a decade and, and we've, well, fast forward 15 years and we've come such a long way with regards to seasonal and temporary migrants to, to Australia. 
So there are two schemes that stand out. Uh, first, the Seasonal Workers Program, the SWP, as, is, as it is known. This is, a, uh, this is a temporary migration scheme whereby Pacific Islanders can come to, to Australia to work in the horticulture and agriculture industries for a period of anywhere between three to six months where they basically come, you know, the people jokingly say they're coming to pick fruit, but there's a lot of jobs that go on in these farms. But yeah, a lot of it is picking fruit. Uh, and, you know, this is a huge boon to the agriculture sectors in, and in agriculture and horticulture industries in Australia. Uh, as the scheme has enjoyed bipartisan support since it was started at the um, end, final years of the last Labor government, but has really been doubled down on uh, by this government. And we've seen numbers in the SOP continually grow year on year uh, at a rate of almost 100%, so doubling every year. And so, you know, that just shows just how much demand there is for this scheme in the agriculture industry. Uh, and the demand is there for a number of reasons. The other sources of uh, labor that, that the agriculture industry have drawn on traditionally have been you know, local labor, which has a, has a cap on it because there's a lot of Australians who just don't want to do this hard work. And they're also in far flung parts of the country. That's been supplemented by backpackers. Uh, and, you know, and, but backpackers are just there for a, a second year visa on it to spend more time in Australia. So they're unreliable. That they and they don't work nearly as hard as the Pacific Islanders. So Pacific Islanders come in, they will come back year on year if they can, and they're shown to be up to 20% more productive than other forms of labor in the farms that are drawing on them. So the scheme is, you know, it's a real win-win. It's a win yeah. for, the, for the workers who are going. It's a win for the employers who are struggling to find uh, steady and reliable work. It's a win for the Australian government for our national interests in, in the Pacific. So SWP uh, is a great program and is going, hopefully will continue to grow and hopefully it's going to get even supercharged this year as you know the, we're getting into picking season now and there are huge, huge labour shortages all across Australia. The second scheme, it's more of an, in its infancy, is called the Pacific Labour Scheme, the PLS. It provides longer term temporary work option for Pacific Islanders to come work in Australia for two to three years. And this enables people to earn and remit more income and it's open to more industries than just horticulture and agriculture, but with a specific focus on regional Australia. However, the, so the scheme is, is in its infancy. There's a few hundred in it. A lot of them are working in abattoirs, uh, but uh, in other sectors as well, such as like cleaners on Hayman Island. And, you know, it, it's got a lot of potential. However, the scheme does need to be changed to enable workers' families to accompany them. It does cause great social, you know, there are major social negatives to being separated from your family for such a long period of time and it also does not currently offer a pathway for permanent res residency and that should be something that should be considered especially if it is if the pls is to be a bridge to a more longer term strategy for pacific islanders who are at risk from the impacts of disasters and climate change right so we have these policy options we have them to help people stay in place we have these programs to manage their migration should they need to leave but Jane, I did want to come back to that point you made about the legal prospects for someone who's seeking refugee or other protection because of disasters and the impacts of climate change. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure, Lauren. Um, well, I mean, in some respects, this hasn't been tested a lot, although there have certainly been cases over the last 15 years or so in Australia and New Zealand. Um, I mean, this is despite the fact you do hear a lot in the media about so-called climate refugees. I think, you know, the, the refugee concept 
you know, as a kind of automatic fit is a, is a bit uneasy because um, to be a refugee, you need to show you have a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group. Now, the impacts of climate change, you know, in terms of what they do to the weather, don't constitute persecution. But I think if we start to adopt a much more nuanced approach and looking at how those impacts affect people's human rights, affect the way governments uh, treat people, whether they withhold assistance from them in the aftermath of a disaster, for example, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think we will start to see more claims succeeding in this area. On top of that, though, human rights law says that governments cannot send people to any place where they uh, are likely to um, face or have a real risk of being arbitrarily deprived of their life or being subjected to cruel inhuman or degrading treatment. And that's where I, I think the, you know, certainly the cumulative impacts of climate change and disasters um, could well start to jeopardise those rights. Mm. In fact, the UN Human Rights Committee in a decision late last year made very clear that, that governments aren't allowed to send people back to situations where they face that kind of um, threat to their life. And the particular case concerned a man from Kiribati Pacific Island country who had uh, sought protection in New Zealand. Now, on the facts, he wasn't granted protection, but as I was mentioning before, that legal principle itself is very, very clear. In the meantime, though, I mean, I guess the, the broader question is, do we want to wait for individual cases to gradually change the law? Mm. Um, that, you know, they're one tool, but I think it it is perhaps a better option to be thinking more broadly about what sorts of country or region-based humanitarian arrangements Australia might create for people in the Pacific who can't go home or need to leave their homes because of a disaster or climate impacts. So, I mean, in the United States, for instance, there's been a mechanism called temporary protected status where an executive decision can be made that there's been an earthquake in Haiti, for instance, and anyone who's from Haiti already in the US doesn't have to go home when their visa expires. Um, that's one form of protection. Australia could look at something similar. We could also look, though, more proactively at if disaster strikes in, you know, Tuvalu, for instance, and people are at risk, their lives are at risk, and they need to be moved, um, will Australia assist in some way? Now, as I said, that could be done by Australia, um, but it could also be done at the regional level. Um, and I think, too, that's, that's where, as I mentioned, Pacific Island governments are turning their attention at the moment how can um, regional mobility schemes be, be part of providing these protection opportunities? Despite all the dangers of climate change which are facing the people in the Pacific, there are plenty of lifelines that Australia could create. And from what I'm hearing, these would be of mutual economic benefit. So there is the potential to really reduce vulnerability to these impacts of disasters and climate change in the Pacific countries. That's absolutely right, provided we don't leave it too late. Jane, Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks very much for having us, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you.